Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's kind of a one-off Sunday, that is to say, um, not a series of messages, but one message to re-share, um, reimagine, re-envision what we've called the REACH Initiative. Uh, now, let's say, at least from the standpoint of using that language and talking about it in the life of the church about six months old. But I thought, what a, I couldn't think of a better illustration Uh, in those few minutes than this event that these students put on. Now, uh, I think uh, Cody said most of that, uh, what took place, there were 14 teams. I'm guessing that rolled up to maybe 100 kids or so that actually took part in the event. They weren't invited to church first. They were invited to people's homes. Many of those were sleepovers. Uh, And they hung out and they did some kind of um, fun competition. But then, of course, they were all invited, but 32 of those kids, junior hires, senior hires, came here. I can't tell you all the stories, but I've heard some, you know, some were, you know, from this Jewish family or this, you know, non-churched background family who came and heard, after some fun, uh, a, a clear presentation of the gospel, and a handful of those kids at least demonstrated or professed a first-time commitment to Christ. I mean, that's it, guys. That's it. I can go home. Let's go home, right? <laughs> We're done. Uh, Because in a sense, that really is, in essence, the REACH initiative. Six months ago today, uh, December 11th, 2016, um, I was standing on this platform, and I shared the total of the capital campaign, which is just uh, a campaign. It was just a part of the REACH initiative, right? And I said to you, thank you. We had aspired for a phase one. Some of that work is starting now. Um, to, re- to raise four and a half million dollars, we raised nearly five million. And I said to you in pledges, thank you so much. And I want to say again, as a reminder, six months later, thank you for your faithfulness. If it is not, were not for your faithfulness, not just in pledging and in giving, let me tell you something, we wouldn't do, be doing anything. So I want to thank you. But behind your faithfulness is God's faithfulness who believes enough in us, imperfect as we are, to call us and equip us to reach a new generation of people, a new generation of brown crofters. That is to say, what do I mean by that? Black or white, Asian or Hispanic, tall or short, uh, young or old, fat or skinny, educated, uneducated. The only qualification for the new generation of brown crofters, they are sinners in need of God's grace. That's what it's really all about. And before we get covered in dust or we begin to see this um, first phase take shape, I wanted to take just one Sunday to remind us what this is all about. It's not about bricks and mortar. It's not about money. It's about reaching a new generation of brown crofters, people who don't know Christ today. It's about than reaching the next generation as these students just illustrated so well for us. It's about going into a deeper community and getting in deeper communities, those of us who are here to know Christ better, and going further with the message, whether that's into the city or the suburbs or different parts of the world. Some of us will get on airplanes, some of us will engage refugees, but most of us, most of us, will go no further or need go no further than our neighborhoods, than our homes, than where we live, than where we work, and simply change our mind, our heart, our attitude about inviting people around us who don't know Christ. That's what today's about. Luke 15, one passage. 
uh, just 10 verses that helps me, I hope, punctuate this moment in the life of our church, this vision in the life of our church, this time. Luke 15, one through 10, Jesus in the parable of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and, and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of, angels, of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, this whole chapter I just read the first 10 verses, there are a total of 33 verses, or 32, is all, uh, really, it's one extended parable. And this one extended parable, first it's the lost sheep, then it's the lost coin, then of course, it's the lost son, right? This is where it's all building up to. Some of us know it as the parable of the prodigal son. But do not be fooled, it's really one story, or do not be confused, right? Uh, he tells them a parable, verse three, and he says, Mel, let's talk about or a woman. Think of it this way. But really, as verse 7, as verse 10 tells us, he's not interested in sheep and he's not interested in coins. That's not the point. He's interested in people. I tell you, in this same way, it's an image, it's a, it's a metaphor, it's an analogy, there will be more rejoicing over heaven over one sheep, no, that repents, over one sinner. It's about people, and what you're really getting here, you might say in a manner of speaking, is it's the, uh, Jesus is having a conversation, verse two, with, well, with two sets of people. A bunch of sinners gathered around him. Now, that, that word is not a, a happy word for us, but it's not necessarily as a pregnant a word or as, let's say, negative a word as it was in his culture. In the Bible, sinners doesn't just mean, you know, someone who did a wrong thing. They're a category of people who live in opposition to God, who live immoral lifestyles, who are, you know, the, the lowest of the low. You don't want to be called a sinner. But these were the people that were gathering around Jesus and not only gathering around Jesus, but actually having a meal with Jesus, which, which implied a level of acceptance, a level of fellowship, and the religious leaders really have an issue with that because the religious leaders, this man welcomes sinners. Let me tell you something about their point of view. Their point of view, although don't be so quick to judge it, was this. As they looked at the Old Testament, they said, listen, God loves people who are righteous, the word is used in, all these, in these, both these parables, who do what is right, who do what he asks. Righteous people, not perfect people, but righteous people. And God hates, 
And you can see this language. He hates sinners, people who are opposed to him, people that thumb their nose at him, people want nothing to do with him, people are working against him. That's the way we see the world. And these were not one-dimensional bad guys, the religious leaders. They were people with integrity. They were people that cared. They knew their Bible. They, they did their best to try to follow God. But think about this for a minute. Listen, how well do you know your wife or your husband or your kids or your best friends? Just trying to really get to know another person in this life is not an easy thing, right? People are complex. People are more than one thing. And to try to fully understand who God is is not an easy thing. And I'm sure these men and women had some things right, but they had something that was fundamentally wrong and it's coming to a head here and it's in, in the contrast is seen in the first two verses. It's all these wrong kinds of people having a meal with Jesus and the right kind of people, so to speak, saying something's wrong here. We thought he had his act together. We thought he was a man who was a, a teacher from God, but apparently not so. Because if he was, he wouldn't be doing this. And what Jesus says... He could say, like you and I do often when people disagree with us, he could say often like you and I do when people are, you know, have something that, you know, uh, uh, don't like what we're doing, just rush us off. Why should I bother with you? But he doesn't. He's compassionate, he's caring. He says to these men, these leaders, these religious leaders, suppose one of you, let me tell you a story, but in these parables, as simple as they might be, there is a profound truth here. What you're seeing in a sense is the interpretive context of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is saying, this is what I'm all about. It's not about sheep. It's not about coins. It's about lost people, spiritually lost people. And the, and the only reason, the primary reason, the exclusive reason I have come into the world, the reason my Father sent me into this world, the reason I, I have cloaked my glory, I have not take, grasped my godliness, in a sense. I've, I've, I've not made that the primary thing. I've, 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 in a sense, you know, toned down my authority. I've taken on the form of a servant. I've gone to the humiliation of the cross for one reason and one reason only, to demonstrate to you that God loves lost people, God loves you, and that's why I've come. That's the express reason why I am here. It's the express reason of, uh, of, of my life, and by the way, that's what I'm about, and that's what the church is supposed to be about, because really the conversation he's having this is the closest thing you can get to the church right here. He's building it. The teachers of the law, the people who are committed to the Old Testament. And they probably had some things right, but they had something fundamentally wrong. And this is what Jesus is pointing out to them here. He's making a very important point to these men. This is what I'm about. What about you? What about us? Now, there's something he says here that, like Jesus, is such a great teacher. You know, my job on the best of days is simply to try to highlight, to, to bring forth his great teaching. But what Jesus says here is both very, very simple and very, very profound. Don't miss it. In this very first parable, he talks about sheep. Now, for those of you who don't know your Bibles, many of you do, let me just say this for sake of time. If you were to carefully read the Bible, this isn't the only time it's mentioned. In fact, sheep and shepherds are mentioned all through the Old Testament, New Testament. I spent part of a day just this week just almost looking at every verse. It was overwhelming. It's mentioned hundreds of times all throughout the Old Testament. The people of God are sheep. The people of the world are sheep. And God as the shepherd. It's mentioned in the New Testament, not just here. There's a whole chapter in, God's, uh, in, in John's gospel that says, listen, Jesus is the good shepherd and we are his sheep. It's huge, but let me say something to you that may rub you the wrong way or at least hit you the wrong way. This imagery 
is not done because it's cute. This imagery is not done because it's sentimental. And some of us, even me, I don't have to look in my office. I might have a picture in my office. Some of you have them at home. You know, the, 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 you know, the, the gentle Jesus with the sheep on his, uh, uh, on his shoulders. It's illustrating the shepherd and the sheep. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing uh, uh, inappropriate about that. But it's not meant simply, the metaphor, to communicate this kind of idyllic, soft, warm feeling. If you look at the total core of what the Bible says, what really this saying here, what it means to be called sheep in a manner of speaking is kind of a spiritual insult, right? But for a purpose. What are sheep? It's a metaphor. It's an analogy. What are they? Why does God use them? This is what they are. It's not about warm and cuddly. It's about vulnerable. Sheep are vulnerable, and so are people. Sheep are weak, They're not lions, they're not tigers, they're not, you know, elephants. All we like are sheep. We are vulnerable, we are weak. Sheep are prone to wandering, right? That's why he uses the metaphor. Sheep often make choices that are not in their best interest. Sometimes they're even dangerous and life-threatening. That's what he's saying. Let me break the metaphor, Isaiah 53. All we like sheep, it's a simile. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. He doesn't say all, you know, third world people, all second world people, all white people, all black people, all educated people. All all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And God the Father has laid on him, therefore, the iniquity of us all. First point, very, very important, we get this. If we really want to be a church that's committed to reaching a new generation, you are infinitely lost and infinitely loved. This is what I think the imagery of the sheep metaphor is saying. You are infinitely lost. What do you mean you're infinitely lost? Are you including yourself in that, Pastor? I've been a Christian for 30 years. I thought you're lost and then you're saved. So what do you mean you're infinitely lost? You mean the people out there are infinitely lost. The people in the marketplaces, the people who don't go to church on Sunday. No, you are infinitely lost. Now, I, I believe once saved, always saved, the assurance of salvation, if those words make sense to you, that God's promises in Jesus Christ are, are forever. They cannot be added to or taken from. If you've received God's gift, he's not gonna take it back. But let me tell you something. My salvation is not finished. Right? The preaching of the cross is to those who perish foolishness, but unto us who are, wait for it, being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Being saved, it is the power of God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean I'm halfway in a promise to heaven. It means my heart isn't complete yet. Is it, Pascal? You know me well enough. My heart's not perfect. My behaviors aren't perfect. My mind's not perfect. My love's not perfect, right? I am being saved. I am infinitely lost But, here's the good news. It's bad news and good news. I am infinitely loved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When I didn't care about God, he cared about me, and it's just the same today. Here's the ways that I'm saying this. All you are like sheep. You are infinitely lost. You are infinitely loved. The problem with many people, including many church people, who's the audience of this parable, this extended parable, is we do not believe either of those truths all the way to the bottom. You believe them a little bit that you're infinitely lost. 
You kind of believe that most, some people are far more lost than you are. Some people still are far more unevolved than you are. You do not believe that you are infinitely lost, and to the degree that you do not believe that you are infinitely lost, you underappreciate that you are infinitely loved. In the, when you don't believe you're infinitely lost and infinitely loved, this is why you're not more forgiving towards others whose lives are imperfect and why you're not more motivated to see past their faults, past their crimes and misdemeanors, past their imperfections to help them reach God. And what Jesus says is, this is what I'm about, this is what the church is about, this is what you need to be about. If we really want to experience the joy that we long for, and I would say this, I think, I think you know, philosophers and academies would agree with me on this point. All people of all stripes and all uh, uh, um, uh, you know, backgrounds have a fundamental human desire. I'll call it joy, they might call it something else. All of us have it. And all of us, Christian and non-Christian, are often trying to find that joy. We talked about joy last Sunday briefly. All of us are trying to find it in ways that don't often deliver. It's not found in another possession. It's not found in another achievement. It is only and primarily found, verse 7 and verse 9, or whatever here in this parable, in these two. It's found when you and I take a small step in helping someone who doesn't know Christ find that message. There was joy and rejoicing in heaven. That's the only place it's found in this kind of way. This parable is, starts with a conversation with religious people. But notice what he says, verse seven. I hope, this t- I hope this made you pause. I tell you that in the same way, let's get off the metaphor of sheep, there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. This is what animates heaven. Then over the 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. I hope that pauses. I hope Jesus is not, you know, giving you a new theology or is not saying, well, really, the world is made up of people who need to repent because they got a horrible life and they're full of sin and they're, and they're you know, they're from a, they're, they're way down the line. And then there are those people, this would sort of reinforce the point of view in verse two, that really don't need to repent. That's what you might think he's saying, but that's not what he's saying. He's being clever, he's being ironic, he's trying to make a point. Nowhere, if you read the uh, the Bible, cover to cover, or the New Testament, would you ever get the sense that anybody doesn't need to repent. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He he knew the Bible, you know, frontward and backward. He was a man who lived a, a relative to the law, blameless, blameless. You talk about a high standard, and he said, oh, I counted all these things, but garbage. When it was seen in light of the righteousness of Christ. Everyone needs to repent. Repentance, I need to repent, you need to repent. The president even decides everybody needs to repent, right? Probably shouldn't go there, but you know what I'm trying to say here, right? In other words, whoever you are, however sophisticated you are, everybody, it's a way of life. What is repentance? It's this. Every human person who's ever lived has a level of guilt and shame in their life. 
You don't, pick the, you don't pick up guilt and shame at the hospital. You don't pick it up, you know, in, in the grade school. You don't pick it up in a dysfunctional family. You pick it up and it's part of the human race. And you and I will do many things, strategies to deal with our guilt and our shame. Sometimes it's religion. Sometimes it's drugs. Sometimes it's lifestyle. Sometimes it's, you name it. We find these strategies, but eventually you get to a place, if you're smart, if you're wise, if you're, you know, if, you, if your eyes are open, to realize these strategies will never deal. In fact, they often only make your guilt and shame worse. And the only hope, the only remedy, the only answer is to turn your life, not to a new idea, not to a new a special set of habits, turn your life over to the gift of God in Jesus Christ who has dealt with the underlying reasons of your guilt and shame on the cross and he will give you the forgiveness of sin and repentance. is just turning your life over. It's a way of life. It's a way of life. All have, all like sheep have gone astray. Not just certain people, all people. That means you, that means me. I was at the... Uh, public market yesterday and I went with my sister and brother-in-law in the morning just kind of a beautiful Saturday morning thing and and uh, uh, saw a lot of people I knew there some many from Browncroft and some not just a bunch of conversations and I wasn't really doing any shopping wasn't my thing my sister was doing the shopping and my brother and I were just kind of talking to people and then finally I was like you know I gotta go and I sort of announced them I said I gotta go and my sister says hey what's what do you mean you gotta go slow down she says take a look around you she says Take a look at the people here. Look at all the, look at the people here. You know, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's white people, there's black people, there's, you know, there's, there's all this kind of, there's tattoos, there's all kinds, and look at this people. She said, this is the church. This is what you're always talking about, you know. Why don't you slow down and live out what, practice what you preach. That's what she's telling me, right? This is it. And so I'm smiling. I promise you, this, this was like a sign from God. As she was saying that this guy is just walking past us, has this T-shirt on, white, a black T-shirt in, in white letters that said this, bad choices make great stories. <laughs> and I thought to myself, maybe this is the church. <laughs> right? But here's the point. Is it messy? Of course it's messy. If we're interested and serious about wanting to reach people, who don't know Christ as their Savior, they don't come ready-made. They don't come problem-free. They're from broken marriages and broken homes and, and screwed-up gender. And you, I mean, you fill in the blank. They're all over the map. But that's why we're called. That's the, Jesus is saying, this is why I have come. There's all kinds of variety of loss, but this is the whole reason the church exists. If we really want to reach them, if we want to be not just have rhetoric, but true uh, reality of reaching people, we need to see ourselves as people who are infinitely loved, excuse me, infinitely lost and infinitely loved. And when you do, you'll be more motivated to move forward. Second point in this great passage. Heaven is a place that celebrates sinners saved by grace. Now, I, I, I've read the, the Bible many times and do, and Jesus doesn't talk an awful lot about heaven. The only thing I know he says about heaven is a couple things. One, you need to get into heaven. That is to say, you need to make a decision to, to trust Christ, you know, uh, for eternal life. You need, we, that needs to be your desired destination, in a sense. And he also says in some places that when you become a Christian, some of heaven comes in you. It's called the kingdom of God being born again. In other words, that when, in a sense, we need to live our lives in light of the future, uh, uh, the future in heaven. That's all Jesus basically says. He doesn't say much more about heaven. When you look at the entire biblical revelation, here's what you see of heaven. 
This is what I remember. There could be more. Exodus 32, 33, Isaiah 6, and the book of Revelation, all you see is, these images, is a throne, the God himself, all these elders bowing down in worship, smoke and incense and unusual creatures. It's all about the holiness of who God is. This is the one passage I know that says heaven isn't just about what God is, it's about what God cares about. I tell you, now look at verse 10. In the same way, God didn't care about coins and sheep. There is rejoicing, now watch this, in the presence of the angels of God over, you know, the 20 centuries of the church, over the, the, great, the great awakening in the 18th century. No, over one sinner. Now, this is what Revelation 5 says. I'm sure the Bible is giving us literary flourishes and we, there's so many things we don't know. But it says the angels of God are giving a high five hallelujah to one sinner. Revelation 5, John says this. He was in the spirit, this great um, vision. He says, I saw there in heaven. Just a little footnote. Thousands upon thousands of angels. And then he says this, 10,000 times 10,000. I had to do this a few times in my calculator, but that's 100 million angels. So who knows if he's just giving you a big number? Who knows if it's more than that? Here's what heaven is. It's 100 million angels and more who are throwing a party, who are saying a huge hallelujah over Mimi Wheeler coming to Jesus Christ as her Savior, right? One person. Isn't that unbelievable? Over Bill coming to Jesus Christ as his Savior. Over little old Rob Catalani coming to Jesus Christ as his Savior. Over Gary Nauman coming to Jesus Christ as his Savior. Over those six or seven or eight or 12 kids in C Hall who came to Jesus Christ as their Savior. A hundred million angels are saying, hallelujah. Jesus says, listen, heaven is a place that celebrates sinners saved by grace. He says, I want to start an organization down here that does the same thing. That's what he's saying. That's the whole point of this chapter. And the question is, is that who we are? Is it who we want to be? Because this is what God has called us to do. If we really want to see God's power show up, if we really want to experience this kind of joy, we need to redirect our focus off of ourselves. Oh, gosh, it's so easy to be focused on yourself. Aren't you tired of yourself? Raise your hand if you're tired of yourself, okay? <laughs> redirect the focus off of yourself to the hope-starved friends all around us and start inviting people into your lives, your homes, and your church. One of my good friends tells me this. He says, you know, the best way to to make a change in your family, the best way to make a change in your business, the best way to make a change in your church is simply to do one very simple thing, change the subject, right? Change the subject. Stop the preoccupation of yourself and open up your life to what God wants to do. Last point, the purpose of the church, that's all Jesus is saying, is to reach the lost. The purpose of the church is to reach the now you say, that's messy. Of course it's messy. It's going to be problematic. Of course it's going to be problematic. Read the book of Acts. You know, bad choices make great stories, right? That's true for me. Are you kidding? It's true for most of you. 
Most of the people I know, their lives are messed up, and most of my friends go to this church. <laughs> P.S., okay? <laughs> of course, it's messy. Let me, in the just few minutes I have, and we're done, share with you how some of this is already happening, right? We got a lot of work to do. The, oper- the fields are white unto harvest. Oh, my goodness. You talk about a missions field, right, Kristen? Oh, my goodness. Like, my, like you, my sister works at a public school, and she come, I talked to her, she's like, you'd think she was talking about an insane asylum slash war zone slash whatever. And you know where her school is? It's at the top of the hill. And yours is around the corner, okay? Guys, we need to wake up. But here's my point. My challenge is all of us to get real and, and to make a commitment. But guess what? It's already happening. Let me inspire you very quickly. This is in the last few months. Many of you know there's been suicides, uh, student suicides in this community. I think Penfield High School's had five suicides in the last handful of years. One of them was just two months ago, a freshman girl, not just a name in the paper, people in this church knew her. I sat in uh, one of our, our, our theaters halls uh, a, a couple weeks ago with some students just interviewing them. Two of the students in that room knew this girl personally. What are we going to do about it? It's messy. It's broken. Well, Lori Klatt, some of you know her, Sarah Tilly, both adult loss, ninth grade small group leaders, they're small group girls that they work with. Two of them in that small group knew this girl person said, what can we do? They said, how about we make dinner and bring it over? Because they knew her personally. They made dinner, they brought it over. This was a note back from the mom. Quote, I can't tell you how uplifting it felt to have so many loving, smiling faces bring us dinner the other night. All of you were so supportive and positive. It put a much-needed smile on my face. I just know that you girls are going to bring a lot of positive change in the world. I was so impressed by your maturity. You're all so beautiful, inside and out. Lori, thanks so much. Sarah, thanks so much for organizing this and helping throughout. It meant a lot. Guys, that's the REACH initiative. How about a little rejoicing in this room, all right? I mean, come on. That's what it's about. That's it. Shelly and Jason Tierson, if you know them. Shelly has been involved with Amy Roeders, a few other people, as, you know, volunteer helpers at a mission that we support in the city called Compass Care, who works with mostly teen moms, but people in general who are uh, pregnant and, and struggling. Young girl comes in, this was a few months ago, teenager pregnant, lives here in this community. She, uh, after some counsel, it's all, it's all free counsel, there's no arm twisting, but she decided when it was done, she wanted to keep her baby. Uh, problem was her mother said, either you get an abortion or don't bother coming home. So a volunteer, Kathleen Hunt, who, who volunteers there from Browncroft, she said, hmm, I don't know what we can do. She calls her friend Shelly Tearson and says, Shelly, listen, I got this situation. And she doesn't say, Shelly, gee, do you have a blanket? Do you have a you know, uh, an extra uh, 20 bucks, 100 bucks. She says, can this girl come and live with you? And she says, sure. And she brings that girl in and for the next eight weeks or whatever it was until April 17th and brings that baby to full term. And in the process, the mother softened and came around. And this family, through their simple saying yes, they're simply taking their eyes off themselves, opening themselves up for the opportunity, change two lives, let's call it three, for Jesus. That's the REACH initiative, living it out. Let me close with 
where I started with these kids, a couple of them. And I close with kids because you know what? If kids can do it, I think you can. I think I can. The Double Dog Dare a couple weeks ago, Maddie Pitt, seventh grader. She invited nine girls from her gymnastics team over. Her dad told me she has never invited anyone to church, okay? That was a seventh grader. She's got a lot of life ahead of her, but still, she's never invited anyone to church. Five of those nine said yes. All five of those came to church the next day. As her dad tells me, one of them was from a family that, you know, had nothing to do with church, and they all heard the gospel of Jesus. Emerson Ormond, if you know Dan and Stacy, she had six friends, same story. Let me close with this one. Maybe it's the closest to some of our experience. Caleb Mason, 12 years old, Kim and Chris's kid. He stuck his neck out there, as his dad said, invited three friends. They all said no. And he said, Dad, I'm wondering if I'm disqualified from coming. Maybe I shouldn't come because all my friends said no. And his dad said, as I did to his dad, whether or not your friends say yes is not our responsibility. One man sows, another man waters, and God gives the increase. I said, listen, if, if a 12-year-old boy has the courage and wherewithal to pick up a phone and invite three of his friends to a fun event that might lead to, a, uh, uh, to hearing the gospel, don't you think you can do it and I can do it? Right? Our problem isn't opportunity. Our problem isn't circumstance. Our problem isn't money. Our problem isn't education or giftedness. It's just being willing to take our eyes off ourselves, to, rec- to remember that we are infinitely lost. Get over yourself. It's not going to go away. We're all going to have problems to fix until the day you die. But we are infinitely loved. And what, what animates heaven, what God is most interested in, he's not interested in, you know, brokering a peace deal. He's not interested in global warming. These are not the top issues in heaven. What's most interested in heaven is one sinner one sinner who turns their life over and says, I can't do this anymore. I want the forgiveness of Jesus. Heaven throws a party and Jesus says, the church is supposed to be just like that, right? I want to close by uh, one more example. This is a real live one. Our Honduras team is going to come out. We're going to pray for them and be done. And they are going uh, this time not to their suburban neighborhood, not to the uh, a city of Rochester, but they're going to go to Honduras uh, to work with one of our missionaries to share the gospel. And I want to pray for them as we close our service uh, this morning. So one more time, my good friend Mike and Kim and company, uh, just in a, in a minute or so, tell us what you're doing and, and who you got with you. Yes, absolutely, Pastor. Thank you. Um, I don't know if that's working. Is this on? Is it now? Yeah. Try it now. We wanted to thank all of you, too, for your support over the last several months to make this possible for us. We, uh, you know, you're our family, so it's, it's, uh, it's nice to be sent off by all of you and be supported by you. Um, our team consists of uh, Eugene Diaz at the end, okay, Patrick and Georgina Ho, and Jen Fonseca, Emily Jennings, Dan Free, Kim Billcliffe, and myself. So the eight of us will be going down in support of the Yurka family, uh, Peter and Tyann. And Browncroft has supported them over the years. They've been down in, in Central America, I think, uh, between Honduras and Guatemala, probably 25 years or so. So they've raised their children down there. 
and uh, they, uh, their daughter and her husband have um, raised, I think, close to 17 orphans down there. They all live in one three-bedroom house. Um, so we are going to do whatever they want us to do. And if some things we did last year when we were down there, and we, we plan on doing the same things, we go to probably four or five villages and we feed them. We cook a big meal for them and deliver the food to them. We have a vacation Bible uh, study for the kids. We uh, share the gospel message with them and, and play with them and um, just minister to the people in the villages. They also have a, a very good uh, ministry to the 18th Street Gang, a very violent gang down there in Honduras. Uh, Tyann, who's affectionately referred to as Mama Ty, by the gang members and, and their families, uh, they've brought her into her inner circles and they know that if she brings anybody there, they're not there to hurt them, they're there to love them and uh, encourage them. So, so we'll be doing that to their families as well as going into one of the prisons down there to um, encourage and minister to the, the prisoners themselves. Um, we support or the, the Dress Girl program. Many of you have probably heard of that. We bring dresses to the little girls and her eyes get about this big. And, and uh, I won't get into all the ins and outs of that ministry, but it's a, a very good ministry for the safety of the girls and also to um, bless them in, in many ways. This year we have an added um, uh, blessing with the, the uh, Patrick and Georgina. They uh, own Rochester Optical, so they'll be bringing probably 200 plus pairs of glasses and doing a little bit of a um, optical ministry to the people in the villages as well. So there's a lot of things going on. There's more things than that, um, but it's we're looking forward to um, a good trip and being used by God in whatever way He He desires to use us. Amen. There. Join me as we uh, pray and commission this team. And let me say this too. Um, uh, Back to the REACH initiative, some of you would remember, it's a series of individual initiatives that make this up. Two of them are missionary, or missions-minded, that should say, they're about outreach. One's a city partnership, more to come. One's an international partnership, to create a new REACH partnership with a strategic group of people or part of the world um, for a church, for a new season for us, for students, for adults, for you know, docs, you know, for uh, professionals uh, to engage our church in a new season of mission. And we boiled this down to a few. Many of you know I was in Peru in March to explore one opportunity. I'm going to go with this team. I'll be joining them uh, July 7 for a few days to explore Honduras as a place. And then while they're still continuing, I'm going to uh, uh, get on a plane and go to Bolivia and meet with our other, one of our other missionary partners to explore that so that we're going to finish our work and hopefully bring forth to you uh, a, a new partnership in one of these three, uh, four areas that we are looking at. So that's uh, also a little reach update. Let's pray. Father, we bring before you this team and ask that you would be working both in their hearts uh, over these weeks as they prepare to go further with the message of the gospel in this place. We pray also that you would be working in these communities in Honduras, in these prisons, with these kids, uh, with our friends and partners, preparing hearts there for what it is you've prepared uh, for them to do. Strengthen their hearts, bless their efforts, and advance your kingdom, we pray, through our church, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give these guys uh, a hand.
please stand with me and we'll get, uh, we'll move out, uh, finish our service. Let me say one last thing. I want to, if you'll allow me in a, in a minute, I want to pray for you all and pray for us as a church. In the center of your bulletin, or I shouldn't say in the center, but in there somewhere is a card. It's just simply on one side, it's nothing more than a reminder of next Sunday's event. Uh, uh, the um, Father's Day um, Sunday, but really the outreach opportunity. So it's a reminder for you to be praying for that. There's no one here who can't pray for that. Pray for God to use it. Pray for Jason. Uh, pray for us. Pray for God to, to, to inspire the families, the kids, the adults. Maybe there's a, uh, a brother, a friend, a neighbor who uh, needs to come and, and would come because they like a classic car. Would come because you, their nephew asked them uh, to hear uh, and hear the gospel. But on the other side, it's just a, uh, these words, it says, reach one. And this is really not just focused on June 18th, but I want to ch- set a challenge, and I'm going to pray for you this morning, really to pray for all of us, right? If our students, if our kids, if a 12-year-old boy or a 7th grade girl who's never invited anyone to church can take a simple step, if those ninth grade girls who said, you know, we got, a, we got a family in our school that's heartbroken, what can we do? If they can do that, so can you. And so can I. And if we would take seriously, I'm going to challenge all of us. In this summer and this calendar year, the six months we have left, right? We're six months into this. For the next sense, that all of us would simply identify one person. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someone you've been talking to for a while. Maybe it's a, 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 um, a, a colleague. Someone who doesn't necessarily down and out physically or materially, but is spiritually lost. All we like sheep have gone astray. All we like people have turned their own way. Someone who needs, who's hope starved who needs the gospel and say, God, use me. I'm going to start praying about them. I'm going to invite them over to my house. I commit to reach one for you in this season. What would this church be like? Some of the answers might be no, like Caleb Mason. It's not about what they say. It's about being used of God to obediently, simply open your life. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us in this room today. Help us to see that we are called where we live and work and play to be your servants to a hope-starved world. Free us from our preoccupations and help us to know that we are infinitely loved and move us toward those around us who need you. Make this church an instrument for your glory in this our day. Help us, each of us in this room today, to hear your voice and obey it. Use us to reach a new generation of people in this community that do not know you today as their Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.